Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hi there and welcome to Cross Section. We're back for our fourth series and it's actually now been a year since Cross Section began. And what a year it's been. I'm Jo Evans and I'm joined by Peter Linus, Danny Webster and Alicia Edmund and we are back to help you navigate the news cycle and culture around us as we follow Jesus. As we look at the biggest news stories and cultural moments, we want to be asking what difference does being a Christian make to the way we respond? What can we be adding to the conversations our peers are having? It's good to be back. Danny, hello. Hello. I think it's fair to say that being director of the advocacy team at the Evangelical Alliance isn't always a glamorous job. I think it can be quite a fun job most of the time. Fun, sure, but glamorous maybe not. (laughs) But this week you went on the shiny Eurostar to Brussels. So how was it? Well, the Eurostar might be shiny, but it's not my favourite thing. My original Eurostar on Tuesday was cancelled, so I had to go on Monday. And then last night on my way back, I was delayed again. Not too much glamour there. But yes, I've been in Brussels for the last couple of days. Been a really interesting couple of conferences and meetings, mostly talking with church leaders and representatives from other evangelical alliances about how they can encourage Christians to engage with their parliamentarians. So we had people from Sweden, Denmark, Albania, Belgium, Spain, all over Europe talking about how they can engage with politicians and it was a pleasure to share some of my experience some of what we've learned over the years of as we engage with parliamentarians I'm always interested what are those kind of conferences like like from a scale of some business meeting to church weekend away brothers and sisters and the lord gather (laughs) together where is it this was much more kind of workshop symposium 25 30 people talking about their experience sharing different experience sharing different examples so it was much more of a learning experience very good alicia i gather you've also had some glamorous meetings this week yeah not as glamorous as danny i didn't get to go to europe but on monday was invited to a kind of a keynote speech at the Terrace Pavilion at Parliament. So it's overlooking the Thames, except when it's dark, you don't see the glamour of the skyline on the waters. But special guest was Bishop Barron. So if you're a YouTuber or into kind of faith in the public square, he's a Catholic theologian who is well-spoken, well-versed. And he was there talking to a room of probably about 200 parliamentarians, journalists, Christian organisations and others about the role of Christianity in public conversation which was a timely conversation that's going on at the moment. And Peter, not that it's a competition, but how has February kicked off for you? Yes, my travels may be less salubrious than Danny's. I was in Derby, but it was Graves with some leaders excited to join their uh, theology conference. And uh, we're looking at some of the cultural stories again that underpin what's going on. Why is the conversation so often about sex? You might want to come back to that later on in today's episode. But it's not our fault. Culture is driving us there relentlessly. And we're engaging where we find culture rather than leading the conversation to that point. So great to be with them. And then we had an all-staff EA gathering. So lots of you in London in person this week, which was great fun. I'm sure that was a real highlight. And it's not our fault. That might just be the title of this podcast. So, Peter, on the subject of sexuality... 
Let's go to our first story this week. What's going on with Nicola Sturgeon? That's a larger question in general, but on specifically this week. This this week. week. Um, so it's called in the past uh, a gender uh, recognition reform bill, and have been uh, there's been a lot of debate around that. We've been involved in some of those conversations, but it came in the last week or two really to a head around a particular prisoner, uh, born male and committed a number of sexual offences, rape offences, while a male, now identifying as a female, and uh, was about to be sent to the female prison estate, as they call it. And Nicola Sturgeon was asked, so hold on, you've said previously, trans woman or woman, is this person not a woman? And she wanted to avoid that. And so when, is this person a male? And so her answer was, this, the individual is a rapist. And the Scotsman, one of the leading papers in Scotland, said, have we just created a third gender? Are there now male, female or rapist? And yes, they were pushing at her a little bit, but I think fundamentally saying, hold on, this is what a lot of people have been saying. Where does this lead to on the two sexes that we recognise? Where does the conversation go? Nicola Sturgeon looked deeply uncomfortable. She is an extremely competent politician, but this was the first time I think I've ever seen her really struggle in the headlights, if you like, of the reporters asking her this question, and she did not seem to know where to go with it. And I think that begs a wider question for us as society as to where these laws and these bills are going. And the for me, the really interesting part of one of her answers was when she was pushed on this, and she basically said she didn't have enough information to answer whether this person was male or female. And that may have been true, but the problem is that the law that the Scottish Parliament have passed and is now subject to a legal challenge says you don't have to have enough information. You don't need medical diagnosis or proof. It is based on someone's choice. So if someone would choose to describe themselves as male or female after the three-month waiting period, they can then become that in a legal way. So her very comment undermined the law that, that she had just pushed through Parliament. I think what strikes me is that as Christians, we're, we're holding the view that there are two genders, as male and female, that that gender is consistent with how we were born, how we were made. And a lot of people don't like that, but part of our challenge is to remain consistent. And I think what I hope people across different communities and different opinions on gender will find with Nicola Sturgeon is that it's inconsistent because surely uh, whether male or female trans not trans you can be capable of sexual violence so what why is it that when someone has been accused of sexual violence or rape that suddenly it's not possible for them to be a trans woman so I think we know statistically that the vast majority of violent crimes are committed by males and this is one of the challenges, and, and that's what we found in this case. So the person presenting was known as, I think it's Adam Graham at the time, and they, as a male, committed acts of violence against a female. And so that those statistics are, are overwhelming and clear. Then you have somebody who then says they're presenting as one, but now they're about to be sent into the female prison estate where they are going to have a significant amount of access to females again, including female prisoners and often female wardens, and they, it's putting them at risk, the other prisoners, and, and then the, the stats get skewed around that. So we can't hold good information because this person is now being categorized as a woman committing crimes against another woman. 
but actually they weren't. They were doing it as a meal. And so this is where the complications come. And it's not easy. I'm not saying there's an easy win. There is a sense that there's a gotcha moment with Nicola Sturgeon. I don't think that's helpful. I can see why people have done that. I can see the frustration some people have had because she's been very adamant up to now. There were lots of proposals. There was a specific proposal that said when you are charged with a sexual offence, you're allowed to change uh, your sex or gender. And that was rejected when this legislation was going through. And people said, oh, you're scaremongering. These are ridiculous ideas. And literally two weeks later, we had this case coming up. And so this is what's raised the question. So I think they are very valid. That's the concerns in behind is who generally perpetuates the violence. It's male. Part of that, as Louise Perry in her book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, reminds us, is to do with physicality, the male sex drive and the male physical size. These are physical realities of the creative world in which we live that we've got to come to terms with. And denying that isn't going to solve the problem. For someone and we can hold questions about motivation for someone who would want to present as a woman who was born male, they will be a vulnerable person in a male prison. Mm. Um, so I'm not going to argue about that. But then for them to be placed in a position where they are a threat to other women by being in a women's prison doesn't solve the problem either. So it is a complex problem. It seems like some of the debate has shifted from the assumption being that people are automatically placed in the prison of the sex that they choose to present as to actually asking more questions about that. And where that will land, I don't know, because it seems like the only simple answer will be that they end up having separate wings for um, trans prisoners and but the numbers are small. But as Peter says, some of the data quality is poor, so we don't always have the information that we might want. Yeah, this seems to be one of many difficult questions around gender on how do we both respect those who would categorise themselves as trans whilst not undermining the safety and well-being of, more often than not, women. We see that in the field of sport as well. So the kind of slogan is trans rights are human rights. And actually, that sounds good on social media. And then you want to pause and say, hold on, what are trans rights? No, trans people have human rights. That's a good thing. I want to absolutely support that. And we've talked before about the framing of human rights and how we understand those came about and absolutely applicable to everybody. And the reason they're applicable to everybody is because of the equality and dignity of everybody. And that, for me, is rooted in the God story. And I don't think you get it any other way. But... Once you say a certain group, trans rights, um, are human rights, then you start to categorize that certain groups have certain rights and then those rights come into conflict with one another and that's where we get ourselves into trouble. That framing, I think, is really unhelpful. Trans people have human rights, great. Trans rights are human rights, problematic. And again, it's often the slogans, trans women or women, hold on, that's the one that Nicola Sturgeon got stuck on because you've got a very simplistic slogan towards a very complex situation and problem for us to address and once we start to step back and one of the things we love doing in this thing is stepping back and what's the issue right human rights let's talk about that really well not the other and so i think much healthier conversation and way of looking at this both as christians but actually engaging in a culture that doesn't always agree with our foundation story but it's realizing its story doesn't hold in this moment it's not resolving it and that's the challenge and so we're saying, actually, I think there is a better story and we want to invite you into that. And going from one tricky issue to another, we're going to be touching on the Church of England and Synod and things in just a few moments. But it's been announced that gendered language in worship is going to be discussed by the Church of England, particularly in how we refer to God as he. Alicia, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick your brains first. 
how... In all honesty, with confusion in that sense, yes, we recognise that God is beyond both male and female, and yet he is set out in Genesis kind of order that we're image bearers of him. And so removing liturgy or hymns and going for that kind of gender-neutral equality approach feels feels like an overstep. I'm still trying to process the need for why doing that encourages some level of inclusivity and engaging in that. So for me, there's a confusion as an initial reaction and an ongoing process as I kind of journey with that. So slight hesitancy, confusion, uh, and don't really see its purpose in doing that. And I think obviously this became big news this week. I think it was on the front page of the Daily Mail. Uh, The Liturgical Commission of the Church of England and Faith and Order groups don't normally make front page news. And I think one of the points of defence was that they'd been asked to consider this. And as part of their five-year cycle of considering things, they are considering it. And that's about all that they're doing. But that isn't all there is to say about it, because sometimes we do... um, try and fit God into our categories. So I think to try and say, oh, is God male or is God female? Or should we use his or her pronouns or they their pronouns in relation to God? It tries, ends up reducing God to a human level when actually God is, he is not gendered, he is above that, using male pronouns, but also female imagery at different points. I think we often run the risk of trying to reduce it into human categories. And actually, I think that's where I would want to encourage the Liturgical Commission and the Faith and Order Commission of the Church of England to reflect as they do their work on this. Yeah, that's really helpful, Danny, because I, I, my question was going to be, say this comes up with our friends who aren't Christians, how do we both address the question whilst if our friends are asking about God, we don't want to be, we don't want, it's not the detail that we want to be getting bogged down in. We want to talk about who God is. That's a really, yeah, those are some really helpful points on how to do that. We can't but anthropomorphize God, as in we we have to human, we only can use human language to try and comprehend God. And that's the biggest challenge in this moment. So as Alyssa said, look, we read in Genesis that God created male and female, humankind in his image, male and female. So they're both within God. That's the transcendent bit of going, whoa, blows our minds. But then somebody, I think, said it this week, what are God's preferred pronouns to use the modern speak? Now, I don't like all of that, but I also get what they're trying to say is how did God present himself? He appeared as a male, Jesus, and he, Jesus taught us to pray, our father. The changing of the our father says, well, on, we know better than Jesus. I have a problem with that bit of the prayer. But as Danny said, look, you read in Isaiah, God's described as a mother hen gathering in his, her chicks. Sorry, there you go. In that moment. So we use different adjectives because God is way beyond what we can comprehend. So this moment is completing the two different stories, isn't it? The incredible nature of God and then this kind of catching that non-gendered, non-binary language of the moment that gets really confusing for people. And it is the risk we have when we try and bring God down to our level. And yet we have to acknowledge absolutely how did he turn up as a particular, in that particular moment, a Jewish man speaking Aramaic, brown skin, brown hair, as best we would understand, etc. And we've done, we, we need to absolutely hold that and acknowledge that. And that's how he taught us to pray to our Father God in that moment. Mm. It's so, I find it so cool to think about the fact that, yeah, we're told to call God our Father. He's presented male in that way. And yet we know that all of us, whether male or female, are made in the image of God. How that works, I won't fully understand until I'm in front of the gates of glory, but until then. 
it can be frustrating when it seems like all Christians can talk about is sex and gender and sex and gender. However, there have been some particularly big stories this week. Today, in fact, just in the last few minutes, we saw the conclusion of the General Synod. Um, Danny, I think you've been better at multitasking and have actually read what the conclusion's been. Could you just give us that live bit of breaking news? Yes, the General Synod has completed its vote on the motion around living in love and faith, which is a year-long project examining the church's beliefs and practices around sexuality and marriage. What came to Synod was a motion that apparently didn't change the Church of England's doctrine on marriage, but did basically say that they were going to produce some prayers that could be used for the blessing of same-sex couples in different forms details and arguments about whether or not does did constitute a doctrinal change and what canon these prayers were being authorised under. And we're not going to get into that. I am not a Church of England ecclesiastical <laughs> lawyer. If you want to find one as a future guest, we can maybe go there. That will be a riveting episode. But do touch on it, sorry, just before you get to the big headline, you do touch on an interesting point that when the, the kind of initial thing was announced, the headline read like the vote had been that same-sex marriage wouldn't be taking place in churches. And I think those who hold an orthodox view on that kind of initial reading might have breathed a sigh of relief. Yes, it is. And basically what they've said is they've said they're not changing the doctrine, but they have introduced some prayers that can be used. And the way they've introduced them, the way they've talked about it, and the way they've discussed both marriage and blessing and sexual intimacy in the resources around it, to my mind at least, equate to an undermining of that very doctrine. Yes, the headline that was leaked from the bishops a few weeks ago was that, oh, we're not changing marriage. But actually, the detail that came in behind that suggested they were making that there were, would be significant changes to how we understand relationships and sexual intimacy and marriage and how that is taught and practiced within the Church of England. The Church of England General Synod have basically voted to adopt this motion. There was one minor amendment, it was an important amendment mm. because it did reiterate that the church were not changing the doctrine of marriage. Now, I would still have concerns about the practical outworkings of some of the other clauses, but it was important that they did adopt this amendment saying they weren't changing the doctrine. But other than that, the motion was passed with a 57%. They vote in a complicated way, but it was voted. And what are the implications on the ground for churches? Obviously, particularly Church of England churches that would hold to the traditional evangelical view of marriage and sexuality. So one of the issues here is that a lot of the issues have been pushed into the long grass or the medium length grass to be dealt with in the next few months. This motion removes a previous document called Issues in Human Sexuality, which, among other things, provided was used for how Church of England vicars should live in relation to their sexuality. That has been removed and the Church of England will bring forward something else to replace that. But an awful lot in terms of what is meant about sexual intimacy and practice and how um, vicars in the Church of England who do live in different relationships or in different forms, how they would be treated in the Church of England, that's all been pushed down the road for these future guidelines. So there's a lot of questions about the practical outworkings that we just don't know yet. Mm. Peter, I'm sure you've got some strong opinions on this. I've spent some time with various Anglicans over the years, but more recently on this. I think 
Firstly, you have to acknowledge the Church of England is a real kind of mixed bunch. Remember, our census was telling us that just under half the population still identify as Christian, but only 6% go to church regularly, read the Bible and pray. And that in between is a lot of nominal Anglicanism. It's, it is a mix. It's got, it's mixed in with the state. It's a mix of different streams or tribes within it. And the bishops are trying to mix by saying, no change to doctrine, but we're going to change the practice basically underneath it. And actually what we know is what we do, the practice, the way we live our lives does affect what we believe. So by actually changing, many people said, actually, just be more honest. You have basically changed your doctrine. You're just pretending you haven't. Mm. And that's not on. I think as Danny said, the big moment may come. The expectation was that what has just passed probably would. The numbers seem to be there. But the document coming in July that Danny was referring to that really anchors this in, that really lays out what's going to happen, what ministers can or priests can and can't do in terms of their relationships, that's the one when the rubber hits the road in many sense and people go, whoa. And I think two big things in that, I'd say a lot of people who are celibate, same-sex attracted Christians have said they feel completely undermined by this. There were consistent speeches at Synod around that. Um, now, there are others saying it didn't go far enough, but I think that group in particular said they weren't listened to, they weren't in the process, they weren't asked. These are the Christians who have said, yes, I'm same-sex attracted, but I'm living a celibate life in response. That group feels completely like the legs have been cut from under them. And the second group is the Global South, and there were representatives from there and many other places around the world. This is a uniquely Western kind of moment, and particularly within Canada, the US and England at the minute doing this in Scotland. And they're saying, whoa, you're way out of culture with the rest of the world. So much for the global majority in the Global South who take an orthodox view. And they feel also that this is, the language was used by a number of people, and I have some sympathy for this, that this is essentially another version of colonialism. The West says, hey, we're going this way and we're going to impose that down on the church globally. I think that's a huge problem. And the only solution, sorry, but is differentiation. They're now looking really and acknowledging they're so split internally, they're going to have to find ways for the two different camps to stay within it. Watching Synod was a really interesting watch. Ed Shaw got up and was basically calling for that. And he made a great point of, he said it's been referred to several times, and I want to distinguish that being single does not equal being lonely, which was a brilliant moment. There was also a moment, I can't remember the name of the guy who said this, and I think actually that's probably helpful. But he got up and he was talking about how when he was part of his previous church, he'd been asked to spend time with a man who was dying of AIDS. It's a gay man. And he was talking about when this person was at that point of dying, they were singing hymns, they were praising God, and he felt such a sense of the Holy Spirit being in the room. And he was basically saying, how could God be present at the death of a gay man if it's a sin? And I was just beside myself because I was like, have we? Have you forgotten that we are saved by grace? It's not through what we do or how we've lived. We are all sinners saved by grace on that merit alone. And it just, it made me think something that I think we all need to be wary of is there was lots of very impressive people speaking and speaking in a way that was convincing. And yet we need to be watching out for lambs in wolves' clothing. Uh, and I'm not making a sweeping statement about everyone wolves approving gay marriage. Clothing, I think. Not lambs and wolves clothing. What did I say? You said lambs and wolves clothing. I don't have to think about that. <laughs> wolves and lambs clothing. <laughs> I was thinking about it so hard in my head. I was like, get it the right way around. Get it right the way around. What is it? Wolves in lambs clothing. There we go. Someone can sound very impressive and convincing, but be saying something that is totally void of the gospel. Alicia, I wanted to ask you, as this story hits the headlines, we're going to have non-Christian friends who might see this and have questions and may well see it as, as good news, as something to be celebrated. 
how do we navigate that moment of people wanting to talk to us about, about the church but addressing that good news bad news question firstly i think it's important and i want to direct this response specifically to millennials as i am one and typically this topic in conversation any conversation of church and the sex we want to lean away from it we want to defer the conversation or someone else the evangelical alliance will speak up for my views and my position and, and stance on that and it's so important for us and this generation to hold the space for the incoming generation that is to come and so I would say, firstly, let's not be an ostrich in this moment where we want to stick our heads in mm. the sand. Secondly, let's not withdraw from the space and the conversation. It is hard, it is difficult, but as kind of God's word and his teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, that we are to be the salt of the earth, we are the light of the world. What we embody, what we carry as the gospel is meant to be a distinctive and different. And drawing back on some of the points that both Peter and Danny made about our private beliefs, and particularly in the area of sexual identity and expression, how we live that out privately, are we quick to repent? Is confession a model of our daily practice, avoiding sexual temptation? Doing that in the private space makes us have a greater conviction to enter this conversation alternative narrative. Listening to Synod, there was someone, a young woman who I work closely with, who spoke passionately and beautifully as she's engaged, she's soon to be married, but how her and her fiancé have abstained from sexual marriage and sexual union. I loved what Ed Shaw spoke about in terms of singleness being not a disease of loneliness. And someone myself who is single in her 30s I hold to that because I truly believe the greater marriage that God calls us to mm. is about holiness. It's a picture of him. It's about perfect union with him. And in this moment, we need to be strong to our convictions. We need to be people that are living out our faith privately so that in the public square, we have a an alternative vision, whatever our marital status, to speak to that with confidence and conviction. And just closing out with kind of Galatians, one of my favorite passages that Paul speaks about, he says, I have been crucified with Christ it is not I that live, but he that lives in me and the faith I now by faith for the son of God who loved me. And there's something for all of us that our identity in Christ isn't in our race, our sex, our sexual orientation. It's in Christ. We crucify that on a daily basis. And I think we need to give more witness to that of what that looks like on a daily basis. So that would be Courage, bravery, and do not vacate the space because the generation that will follow needs to look to models and examples of what does it mean to be a faithful servant in a progressive culture and society. I think Jill Duff had a wonderful piece. She's a bishop in the Church of England, a council member of ours at Evangelical Alliance, and she referenced the Charlie Mackesy print, and it was about the storms and what's the best thing you've learned about storms, and it is that they end. And she's just really hopeful. We're actually in a really stormy time in terms of cost of living, in terms of strikes, wars, and then these conversations are just relentlessly about actually sex, but no, it's relationships and intimacy and things are incredibly important to us. But she was also really optimistic and really hopeful in this moment. And I suppose that's probably where we want to end today with all of that. You can be following along what we do on Cross Section. Follow us on Twitter at EA UK News, on Instagram, Evangelical Alliance. And please get in touch, join the conversation, email us at cross.section at eauk.org. And an exciting development for this fourth series that I need to mention is if you go to the webpage on the Evangelical Alliance website, I'll link it in the episode description. There will be a much more live page with 
article recommendations. So we'll link that Jill Duff article. You can see all of our faces. How exciting is that? If you missed the video era, you can go along and see what we look like, our, our journeys up till now. Brilliant. Third and finally, I did say that this is like the first birthday party here at Cross Section. So I thought it would be fun to look back over the last year and head to the year coming. And I thought, what better way to to talk about the biggest news stories, the biggest cultural moments than to play a game? And what games do you play at first birthday parties that pass the parcel? Bear with me. There's going to be music. I've got wrapping paper at the ready. When the music stops, we'll unwrap each of our each of our nuggets of the biggest moment of the last year and what we think will be the biggest thing in the year to come. So let's play cross section past the parcel. Joe, can I just ask if you've been to a first birthday party recently? Not for about twenty odd years. I won't give away my age. Yeah, it's fine. We'll skip that one over. But first. One-year-old children and pass the parcel is not going to go down well, but let's, let's carry on. <laughs> okay. With no bearing to that comment, it's landed first on Danny. Oh. There, your parcel's open. Um, go on, Danny. My parcel's open. I have to reflect on the chaos and turbulence of our politics in the last 12 months. 12 months ago, Boris Johnson was our Prime Minister. Partygate was starting to unfold. Um, that accumulated in... Uh, accumulated? That is not the word I was looking for, but that's accumulated <laughs> in him stepping down in the summer after loads of ministers had resigned. Liz Trust won the leadership election, was leader for a few weeks... Things didn't go too great for her. And now we have Rishi Sunak as our Prime Minister. So from three Prime Ministers in three months, I think I'm expecting a year with more political stability. I'm expecting that we won't see a general election this year. I'm thinking that it's going to come in 2024. So after a year of a lot of political upheaval, I'm thinking that 2023 may be a more mundane political year. Let's play the music. Okay, next we come to Alicia. (laughs) This is gold. Mine isn't necessarily a specific story, but I think the theme of leadership was a big story in 2022 and the different spaces that it arose. So why do I say leadership? Danny spoke about political leadership and failure who comes in and occupies that vacuum. We had more of the general public looking to Martin Lewis in terms of their guidance and understanding with the cost of living. We had President Zelensky talking about all living and demonstrating resilience in the midst of war, whilst here in the UK, our own political leadership couldn't really work. And then the culmination of the death of the Queen, looking over her kind of legacy of 70 years. So I'd say leadership was the theme for 2022. And just building on this conversation and podcast, I think I think 2023 is going to be a year about identity and expression. Who has the right to hold the cultural conversations of this is me and this is how I express myself, whether overly sexualized or not? And I think as Christians, how do we lean into that space? How do we present an alternative narrative of our identity. 
Let's play that music one more time. It's me, it's me, it's oh. me. <laughs> Who could it be? It's Peter. I'm wrestling the package away from Danny. He just kept wanting to keep it when the music was going. If it's a one-year-old's party, <laughs> mom. Um, I think one of the things Alyssa touched on was in my list was definitely the death of the Queen. It was, it, for me, just the, the public square and faith and the coming together of that as we reflected on her faith in the funeral and events around that. I thought it was just such an interesting moment and our culture dealing with death and death of somebody they felt they knew and yet didn't. Just the complexities of a sort of an emerging and continually post-Christian culture trying to navigate this huge cultural moment and give it significance that actually their story says it doesn't have. So I think the coronation might be interesting, but nowhere near as interesting, I was trying to think. But actually for me, what looking ahead is this deep sense of unease. There's so many little stories going on and every day it feels like there's another angle bubbling. We've had the earthquake this week. We've got the deeper cost of living. The strikes keep rumbling on and bumming in. And our so many of our systems and things that we rely on in health and education are being undermined or contested or struggling in various forms and you add to that something like the war in ukraine one of our most popular episodes reflecting on that at times just like people are going it's just overwhelming we just feel this relentless set of pressures and i think one of the things we'll be doing this year is absolutely leaning into that space and acknowledging that and then trying to wrestle through them that brings us to the end of this birthday party and the end of the first episode back of cross-section I hope you've enjoyed it and I should tell you that we've got some exciting guests lined up for this series. We'll be having on Emma Scrivener, who's a brilliant Christian author on mental health, Ed Shaw, who we've mentioned, who's the leader of Emmanuel Bristol and Living Out Ministries, and John Kirkby, former head of Christians Against Poverty. All that and more to look forward to on this series of Cross Section. See you next week. <laughs>